0: In July 1973, a funeral is held for Rachel Van Dora Miller Anglin at a small cemetery in Hillsborough County, Florida. Most of her 14 children attend, but two are notably absent, Clarence and John. They both have warrants out for their arrest and have been missing for 11 years. Nobody knows whether they're alive or dead. At the far edge of the cemetery, two unusually tall women watch from a distance. They're heavily made up, so it's impossible to tell which side of the family they belong to. And nobody finds out. They leave quickly, without a word, before anyone, including the FBI agents at the service, can ask their names. Which makes the family wonder if there's a possibility, however small, that they've just caught a glimpse of their missing brothers, Clarence and John Anglin. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParkCast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear, and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today I'm introducing you to three inmates who went missing after escaping from the notorious Alcatraz prison off the coast of San Francisco in 1962. It's a story you've probably heard before. But what you may not know is that there was a fourth inmate in on the plan, Alan West. His name is often passed over to focus on Frank Lee Morris and Clarence and John Anglin, the three who actually escaped. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Oh, a Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Alcatraz is a picturesque, 22-acre island in the San Francisco Bay, arguably with some of the best views of the city, but its beauty is often masked by the drab reality. Damp fog blankets the island, and there's a desolation that lingers around the walls of its now out of commission prison. It's a lonely place, even before the sun goes down. Before Alcatraz closed for good in 1963, before it was even a maximum security prison, it housed military inmates. They had the freedom to play baseball, garden, and hold boxing matches, even babysit the guard's children. But with the Great Depression, the island changed hands from the military to the Bureau of Prisons and became home to America's newest class of career criminals men who'd proven too difficult or dangerous for other facilities. By the 1960s, if you wound up on Alcatraz, it was only a matter of time before you were broken. As an inmate, you're assigned to a five by eight and three quarter foot cell. It's barely enough space to lay down and stretch, but it's where you do almost everything. Brush your teeth, change your clothes, shave, And if you're sentenced to solitary confinement, it's also where you eat. Food is one of the few guarantees on the island, along with a bed and access to medical attention. It's not bad, fish, baked potatoes, buttered green beans, and chocolate cream pie. But it's really all you have to look forward to. Most of your time is spent performing menial labor, like cleaning the facilities or fixing broken appliances in the prison workshop. The watchtowers and gun galleries remind you that you're always being monitored. 12 official headcounts are conducted each day, and prison guards watch you around the clock, even as you drift off at night, listening to the lull of distant foghorns and your fellow inmates crying themselves to sleep. Needless to say, you spend a lot of time fantasizing about getting off the island, but if you're prisoners Alan West, Frank Lee Morris, and Clarence and John Anglin, you're not just dreaming, you're making a plan. Each man turns up on the island with their own unique backstory. And one thing in common, prison breaks. Alan West arrives on Alcatraz first. West was raised in an abusive household during the Great Depression. Perhaps in response to childhood trauma, he grew up into a combative adult. Those who knew him described him as racist, manipulative, antagonistic, and always ready to lie for his benefit. A prison guard once described him as devoid of honor and said he respected no human being. Years of burglary, larceny, and auto theft charges put him behind bars 20 different times. A couple escape attempts and numerous assaults on fellow prisoners land him on Alcatraz for the second time in 1958. Next came Franklin Morris. He spent most of his formative years in the foster system and was a bit of an enigma. Soft-spoken and not one to break the rules, but gradually he grew restless. Never successfully adopted, he slid into a life of petty crime. Between the ages of 13 and 33, Morris reportedly spent less than two cumulative years as a free man. A series of thefts, possession charges, and escape attempts eventually bring him to Alcatraz in January, 1960. John and Clarence Anglin arrived last. Raised in a large Southern family, they'd chosen not to join the family business of sharecropping. To them, a life of crime far outpaced picking fruit. This led to reform school, followed by multiple prison stints. Eventually, both land in jail after robbing $19,000 from Columbia Savings and Loan with a toy gun. When they try to escape, officials transfer both brothers to Alcatraz by January 1961. By the time the Anglin brothers arrive, Alan West has been talking about escaping for years. It's been an obsession since his arrival. And unlike his fellow prisoners, he just can't keep the fantasy to himself. He discusses the possibility with pretty much every inmate he comes in contact with. Most don't take him seriously, but Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin know West better. Their paths have all crossed before, at a prison in Atlanta, Georgia, years earlier. The Anglins quickly get on board with the idea They have lives they'd like to return to. Both brothers are in their early 30s with girlfriends, wives, and kids. Frank Morris is a harder sell, but as weeks turn into months, the sense of hopelessness deepens. The risks associated with trying to escape outweigh the mind-numbing mundanity of life on Alcatraz. And even though Morris has neither family or friends waiting for him on the outside, he still wants his freedom. He's come around, and he requests to be transferred to a cell directly beneath West and the Anglins. By early winter of 1961, all four men are in. They're going to attempt the impossible and escape America's most inescapable prison. Now, busting out of a maximum security prison with no resources seems like an impossible task. But by spring 1961, West suggests a plan that could actually work. At the back of each prison cell is a small grate. Behind each grate lies an old unsealed corridor for utility work. If they chisel the wall around the cell grates, enough to squeeze themselves through, they can access the corridor. From there, it's a pretty straightforward shot. If they can climb the pipes inside the corridor, they can access the roof. Then it's just one more climb down outside of the building, sneaking past the guard towers and heading for the beach. All they need are proper tools and to not get caught. Luckily, West has years worth of intelligence about the inner workings of Alcatraz. He knows the cement in the cell block is rotting and porous. He doesn't need a heavy duty drill. He'll settle for a spoon. He smuggles one from the kitchen mess and fashions it into a chisel with a nail clipper. The Anglin brothers and Frank Morris follow West's lead. They steal metal scraps from the prison workshops and make homemade saw blades. All that's left then is to find time to work on their grates, time when the guards won't notice. After careful observation, the men learn that they can work during a short window of time after dinner, before lights out. Inmates are in their cells relaxing, and there's a general din about the building. Sounds of instruments, radios, and conversations. Paired with small hand mirrors angled out of their cell bars, they can be on the lookout for guards patrolling the hallways. Each evening, under the cover of after-dinner noise, they chisel tiny, painstaking little holes in the cement around the vent. Before lights out, the men plug the holes around their grates with toilet paper before blending it into the walls with soap chips. Once that's done, no one can tell the difference. Finally, the holes are complete, covered carefully with deceptive cardboard replicas. Now the men turn their focus to building dummy mannequins. Thanks to hair clippings stolen from the prison barber shop, the heads will act as their body doubles. Body doubles and grates taken care of, the men slip out of their cells at night into the rarely patrolled utility corridor behind their cells. They climb up the ventilation shaft to the top of their cell block, which becomes their own tucked away workshop. And in the midnight hours, they tackle the next pressing question, how do they get off the island? They decide the best answer is to swim. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about playoff basketball. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Anyone leaving Alcatraz on official business travels by boat. But for Alan West, Frank Morris, and Clarence and John Anglin, getting on that boat, let alone stealing it, is out of the question. The keys are heavily guarded in a gun tower. Swimming is their only option. It won't be an easy feat. The tide and strong currents can be nasty. To increase their odds of survival, the men want to construct flotation devices out of prison-issued Navy raincoats. The rubber-coated ponchos would be the perfect material to create a raft and some life vests, if they can find a way to inflate them and make them watertight. As maybe fate would have it, one of the Anglin brothers, John, reads a magazine article about how to vulcanize rubber with heat. He proposes that they melt the seams together and reinforce the edges with waterproof glue, conveniently available in the Alcatraz Industries workshops. If they do it right, the raft might just survive the trip. So Morris, West, and the Anglins start stealing raincoats wherever they can to create a framework for their raft. The whole time, they're mining information from inmates who know the Bay Area well. They ask about the strength of the tides and currents, and the shortest distance across. The two most suggested destinations are Angel Island, or the Marin Headlands, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. For the most part, they try to be discreet about their questions. Any missteps means not only the end of escaping, but punishment, more time in Alcatraz. But the Anglin brothers are less worried, and as time passes, they become impatient. The men are struggling to find a way to inflate the raft. But the Englands begin to wonder if flotation devices are even necessary. They're not concerned about swimming across the bay. They're certainly not worried about the cold. They used to swim the frigid water of Lake Michigan as boys. Morris and West, on the other hand, have been in prison longer than they've ever been out. They haven't set foot in water in years, let alone open water, in the dark. They wanna be cautious. They have one shot to escape. Should it fail, they might never taste freedom again. Frank Morris is the first to come up with a creative solution. With a reported IQ of 133, he's just seven points shy of a genius. He pretends to take a casual interest in the accordion, To avoid suspicion, he practices the instrument in the basement every Sunday. But come nightfall, he dismantles it and uses the pieces to inflate the raft. To everyone's excitement, it holds. I should mention, ingenuity isn't the only reason these guys are able to put together these plans without anyone noticing. There's another important factor. Timing. 1962's not a great year for the prison finances. Alcatraz is understaffed, three officers shy of the standard 98. And that's if everyone shows up, ready to work, which often isn't the case. There's also been recent changes in protocols and leadership. The Road Tower, an outpost that overlooks most of the island, has changed its operating hours. It now closes from late afternoon to morning, meaning there's one less security measure to worry about and both the warden and acting warden on the island are new to their roles as they learn the ropes routines are a little less rigid it's easier for discrepancies and odd behavior to slip by unnoticed like the dozens of spoons that have gone missing from the kitchen mess hall courtesy of Alan west the completion of the raft also comes at the best time imaginable It's June 1962, when the men have a stash of paddles and life vests ready, and the new warden decides to take a two-week vacation. With the boss away, the guards seem more relaxed. For the first time ever, there's a crystal clear window of opportunity. So they take it. On June 11th, Clarence, John, Frank, and Alan share their last meal together. They go back to their cells and shortly after 8 PM, they begin. Between headcounts, Frank Morris removes his fake vent. He places his homemade body double in his bed, pockets his cigarettes, puts on a pea coat and slips through the vent hole. Clarence and John do the same thing and meet Morris in the makeshift workshop. But when they all arrive, West is nowhere to be found. As it turns out, West never fully removed the concrete. He's having a hard time removing his grate and pushing through. Frank, John, and Clarence can literally see him trying to whittle through from the other side. But it's a slow process. By the time they gather the pump, raft, and paddles, West still isn't out. And it's becoming increasingly clear that he might not make it out in time before they have to leave which raises an almost moral-seeming dilemma. Do they help the man who masterminded the plan or do they help themselves? As the acting warden's daughter later writes, there would be no going back to help a man who couldn't help himself. After all, these men are on Alcatraz for a reason. They're criminals who don't even necessarily like each other. And West is no longer necessary Morris and the Anglin brothers can escape without him. So, they do. They use pipes in the utility corridor to climb three stories high and break through the ventilation shaft onto the roof. Inmates below can hear strange rattling noises, possibly the muffled thud of footsteps overhead. Sometime around 11 p.m., Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin shimmy down a four story stovepipe attached to the cell block building. Within minutes, they're on the shore. For the first time in months, if not years, they're unmonitored. They're free. They can just make out the mainland in the distance. And that's where the records end. That's where Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers disappear. It's not until two hours later, around 1.45 a.m., that Alan West finally breaks out of his cell and reaches the rooftop. There's a single life vest and paddle waiting for him, but the raft is gone. The men are gone. And the tide is rushing out fast. When Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin don't emerge from their cells at 7 a.m. on Tuesday, June 12, 1962, the prison guards shout to wake them up. When they don't stir, the guards enter the cells to find the dummy masks under the blankets. One clatters to the ground. Its chin chips as it hits the floor. Within minutes, the reality of what happened becomes dizzyingly clear. They find the fake fence, the holes to the utility corridor, the workshop with glues, screws, wrenches, and raincoat scraps scattered about. And after they find footprints on the roof, they sound the escape siren. Its wails echo across Alcatraz. Guards immediately canvass the island and its facilities. The FBI, the Coast Guard, Highway Patrol, the Army, and Bay Area police are all alerted of the breach. The Coast Guard patrols the waters, looking for the men. Helicopters join the search. The US Army dispatches a few dozen military police from a nearby base. Not knowing how quickly the men could be traveling, FBI agents knock on doors in towns across the bay, like Sausalito and Tiburon. They tell locals to be on high alert for escaped prisoners. The questions begin. Had the men had any visitors lately? Suspicious letters, conversations. Other inmates are brought in for interviews, but nobody has answers. They haven't heard, seen, or noticed anything really. Except of course, Alan West. West oozes information. He smugly tells investigators everything he knows about the plan, including his role as architect. His account is the primary source for what we know about the months leading up to the escape. But who knows? Because remember, West is a notorious liar. When questioned by the FBI, West's description of the men's homemade raft changes multiple times, which is odd. If West was really the mastermind, he should have known what the raft looked like if he designed it. In the end, officials accept most of what he says at face value. Much of the evidence investigators find matches his account. But many walk away believing West lied about one thing in particular. He could have gotten out of his cell if he wanted to, could have chipped his way out in time. He just got cold feet. When it comes to finding the three escaped inmates, Investigators focus on the little evidence that surfaces. A day after the prison break, a paddle, identical to the one left for Alan West on the roof, is found near Angel Island, some two miles north of Alcatraz. Four days later, a handmade life jacket washes ashore near Fort Cronkite Beach in the Marin Headlands. Shortly after, investigators find a rubber packet filled with photographs of the Anglin brothers' friends and family, and a list of names and addresses. A week later, another life jacket surfaces a few hundred meters away from Alcatraz's shoreline. Human teeth marks on the inflation tube clearly indicate it had been used, probably by someone who couldn't swim, in which case it may have belonged to Frank Morris. But days turn into weeks and no bodies turn up. The raft still hasn't been found and nothing brings investigators any closer to finding the men. So the search expands. The FBI re-interviews inmates. Agents travel door to door in nearby communities. They followed up on each and every tip that comes their way, regardless of how far-fetched. The escape makes headlines everywhere. Photos of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers appear in every newspaper. The story grabs the nation's attention, and Americans cling to it. It's better than whatever's playing at the movies or on the radio, because it's real. They can't look away. Three men escape the country's most secure prison, and law enforcement's greatest minds can't find them. Besides, There's something so deeply relatable and human about this story. And that's the desperation for freedom, even if being caught could put you behind bars indefinitely, forever. As the story reaches a fever pitch, so do suspected sightings. For those who don't know, sightings of missing persons are extremely common but in the vast majority of cases, they rarely lead anywhere. In order to accurately identify a missing person, you need to be primed, especially if you've never met them face-to-face. And priming requires something called prospective person memory. You basically have to constantly be on the lookout and engaged, and you need to frequently remind yourself of what they look like and any personal details that would help identify them. For example, tattoos or birthmarks, what they like to do, or unique habits they might have. So while media coverage gives a lot of people the tools to identify a missing person, that doesn't necessarily mean people use those tools effectively. I'm not saying anyone is to blame for believing that they might've seen a missing person. Not at all. That's just the reality. And in the case of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, officials are flooded with so many sightings from all over the country, it's hard to know where to start or which ones to take seriously. One woman in San Rafael says she spotted the three men in a raft near Marin Island. Another person says that they saw three men in a fishing boat near Alcatraz. A woman in Lincoln, Nebraska sends a letter claiming that two weeks after the escape, she was held captive by one of the inmates. He allegedly came to her farm, tied her up, and made off with most of her jewelry. There are hundreds more. The FBI follows up on each and every lead, but they end up dropping all of them because none can be verified. And after enough dead ends, investigators are left wondering, How are the fugitives staying hidden? They're wanted, famous, with no money to their name, meaning they have no apparent resources to stay hidden. They have to surface to survive. Marin County, their most likely destination, didn't report any thefts or burglaries in the days after their escape. So the men likely would have needed support from somewhere else, either from their lovers, sympathetic friends, or family but Frank Morris hadn't kept ties with anyone in his life. And the Anglin family didn't have the type of money required to harbor America's most wanted fugitives. And even if the Anglins had tried to contact loved ones, the FBI would have known. Until the case was officially closed in 1979, the agency diligently monitored relatives' homes and phone lines. And after 1979, US Marshals took over tracking any notable activity. By all accounts, the Anglin family desperately waited for news of John and Clarence's whereabouts, just like everyone else. Any indication that their brothers were alive, I'm sure, would have been welcomed. In fact, their mother, Rachel Anglin, was so distraught by her son's disappearance, she had them declared legally dead in the early 70s. Maybe it was some attempt at closure, because as we know from all the disappearances covered on this show, that can be the hardest part. Not knowing. That might be why at least a couple of their siblings believed their brothers were actually still alive. I mentioned earlier that two tall strangers dressed in black and wearing heavy makeup stood at the perimeter of John and Clarence's mother's funeral in 1973. They left before any FBI agents or family member could talk to them. But another unidentified duo reportedly attended their father's service in 1989. Again, they left quickly, without a word. Maybe it was John and Clarence, risking everything just to say goodbye to their parents. At an event for the 50th anniversary of their escape, Two of the Anglin sisters insisted as much and announced that they had two pieces of evidence that proved their brothers were alive. Apparently, before Rachel Anglin's death in the winter of 1962, their family received a Christmas card that read, to mother from John, Merry Christmas. The other piece of evidence was a photograph of two bearded men in sunglasses it was brought back to them from a family friend who'd visited south america in 1975. he claimed he'd bumped into the brothers in a local brazilian bar even with grown-out hair and beards it had to be them there are holes in this claim u.s marshals don't think it's legitimate due to the men's measurements in the photos still they can't say for certain it wasn't the england's Honestly, I'm not sure what to think. It's definitely odd that their family friend didn't give the Anglins the photo until 1990, when he claims it was taken in 1975. And as for the Christmas card, it could have been John, but it also could have been a cruel joke. It wouldn't be the first time something like that happened to a family of the missing. If this is where all the leads went cold, we'd be left to speculate on decades old evidence, but it's not. There are two recent developments that I find really interesting. The first popped up in 2016, when an anonymous man reportedly made a deathbed confession to his hospital nurse. He claimed he helped the three men escape from Alcatraz in June, 1962. He waited for them offshore in a boat and drove them all the way to Seattle. The other happened just a few years ago in 2018. A letter surfaced that was written five years earlier in 2013 by a man claiming to be John Anglin. Sent to the San Francisco Police Department, the author stated that he was 83 and suffering from cancer. After decades as a fugitive, he offered to turn himself in in exchange for medical treatment. As for his brother Clarence and Frank Morris, He supposedly knew their whereabouts. They both died a few years earlier. It's important to mention, the FBI and US Marshal Service later issued a statement saying the John England letter was unverified and generated no leads. As for why it took five years to be released to the media, I can't say for sure. And with so much uncertainty, I have to go back to whether Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers even survived the swim. The distance between Alcatraz and the mainland can be anywhere from a mile to two miles, depending on your destination. The closest beaches are Fort Mason and Crissy Field, both to the south. And depending on the circumstances, the swim can take 20 minutes or over an hour. Not to mention, The currents push swimmers out from Alcatraz at an angle. If you aim directly for where you want to land, you'll end up beyond it. If the men aim to the north toward Angel Island and Marin, it's likely they didn't make it, regardless of whether their homemade raft worked. The outgoing currents between form a sort of funnel that narrows and pushes under the Golden Gate Bridge. From there, it's out to the Pacific Ocean and open water. I'm not saying it can't be done. In 2015, Discovery Channel's Mythbusters recreated the raft with rubber raincoats. Their team made it all the way from Alcatraz to the Marin Headlands, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. But ample resources, hindsight, camera crews, and an airtight plan are one thing. An untested raft that may not have held together and three exhausted prisoners working against the current is another. A few months after their escape, another escaped inmate attempted the same swim. He was found near the Golden Gate Bridge's Fort Point, unconscious from hypothermic shock. Medical professionals had to revive and stabilize him before returning him to Alcatraz. In my opinion, the best evidence to suggest the men didn't survive the swim is that packet of keepsakes names and addresses of the Englands' family and friends that investigators found washed ashore with a paddle a few days after the escape. Sure, it could have accidentally slipped out of one of their pockets during the swim, but otherwise, it's hard to believe the men would have been willing to part with the items, which were clearly treasured enough to be sealed in a waterproof bag, unless they were faced with a life or death decision their bodies have never been found. But that can also be easily explained. Between 1960 and 1962, 42 people reportedly died by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, but only 17 of the bodies were ever recovered. The rest were likely dragged under by seaweed or swept out to sea. Who's to say the same didn't happen to the inmates? And about a month after the escape, a body was spotted by Norwegian seamen floating about 20 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. They claimed it was wearing blue pants, similar to the trousers worn by prisoners on Alcatraz. By the time the tip was reported, the body was gone. But US Marshal Michael Dyke has gone on record saying he thinks it could have been Frank Morris, the weakest swimmer of the bunch. But like any of these theories, who's to say? To this day, members of the Anglin family still carry hope that John and Clarence made it off the island. And who am I to take that hope away from the people who loved them? Even people who didn't know these men, Americans with no ties to the case whatsoever, rooted for them. They were criminals, sure, but they were non-violent offenders. In the days leading up to their disappearance, they were up against the Bureau of Prisons. And after they disappeared, they were up against the FBI. The odds were stacked against them. And it's human nature to root for the underdog. It's why Hollywood made a movie about them. It's why of all the disappearances I cover on this show, this one you've definitely heard of we like to see people defy the odds because at the end of the day, we want to believe the impossible can happen. But as we'll find out next week, there's a fine line between hope and denial. Next episode. When nine-year-old Walter Collins goes missing in 1928, the police bring a complete stranger to his mother and gaslight her into believing they found her son. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney, and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.